The music selection with churches can sometimes get contested and sometimes be a difficult topic. We've all probably heard of music wars that, that occur within churches where one group wants this type of music and one group wants this type of music and they often fight and argue against each other. And the truth is that music is important to, because, to us because it's one of the ways in which we worship God. For example, in our church service, we usually worship God through singing, we worship God through an offering that we give, we worship God through our prayers, and then we worship God through the proclamation of his word. And we're in a book, the book of Ezra that Nancy read for us of learning about a group of people trying to get back to worship of God. Worshiping God in the manner which they're told to do in the Old Testament and worshiping God in a manner that follows the tradition of their people. Last week we, we learned about these people trying to begin their worship again by sacrificing sacrifices on an altar, giving sacrifices on an altar. This week we're going to read about the music they make and the worship that they offer to God through building a foundation. But it's good to remember how this group of people came to be in this place that they're in. After King David and King Solomon that brought Israel together and created this strong nation of Israel, a series of bad kings came in power starting in 931 BC. And for 300 years, Judah had mostly bad kings that led the nation astray. So God sent prophet after prophet to, to warn the nation of Judah that if they continued their unfaithfulness, then God would punish them. And that punishment occurred in 605 BC, first through King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon that comes and conquers the nation of Judah and takes a group of exiles back to Babylon. That's Daniel and his friends that go. The nation of Judah doesn't follow Babylon's orders or directions, so Babylon comes again in 597 BC and conquers Judah again and takes another group of Jews into exile to Babylon. That's Ezekiel and his friends go in that trip. In 586 BC, just 11 years later, Judah still is not obediently following the nation of Babylon. So Nebuchadnezzar sends his troops. They level the walls of Jerusalem. They decimate the temple and pretty much take everybody back to Babylon except for a select few people left to cultivate the land and make sure it's not overrun with weeds and make sure it's at least kept manageable. But there are two important prophecies given about these events in Scripture. One was from the prophet Jeremiah where God spoke to the prophet Jeremiah and spoke through Jeremiah, and Jeremiah told the nation of Judah in chapter 25, verse 11, and chapter 29, verse 10, that the nation of Judah would not be in exile forever, but instead they would only be in exile for 70 years. And Jeremiah spoke on behalf of God and promised these people that they would get to come back to their land. Another prophecy was by a guy named Isaiah a couple hundred years earlier. Where Isaiah spoke in chapter 44 and 45, God spoke through Isaiah about this king in the nation of Persia named Cyrus that would arrive on the scene and be the, Isaiah calls him, a shepherd of God's people. That this Persian king, Cyrus, would allow the people to go back to their land. 
150 years before Cyrus is even on the scene, God predicted that, that through Isaiah. And as we read the book of Isaiah, we're seeing fulfillment of both of those prophecies. In 539 BC, Cyrus takes over Babylon. And one of the first things he does the next year is he gives a proclamation allowing peoples to return back to their lands. And one of those peoples that was in Babylon was the, the Jews, the nation of Judah. They get permission to go back, fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy. So the people leave in 537 B.C. They arrive back in the land in 536 B.C. And we looked at last week how they make this altar there in Jerusalem. And they begin sacrificing on the altar in 536 B.C. Seventy years after the Jews were first taken into exile in 605 B.C. So while these prophecies are almost complete that we're reading about in the book of Ezra, the work is not yet done. The people are in the land. They've built a, an altar. They have made some sacrifices on it to God. But they still need to and they still want to rebuild their temple. And any building starts with a good foundation. And that's what we're going to read about these people building it. We're going to look at the construction that they do in verses 7 through 9. The climax of that work on the foundation in verse 10, and then the celebration that occurs afterwards. We first read about their construction and this preparation of materials that occurs in verse 7. So again, they're back in the land. They have offered some sacrifices on their altar, a, a small kind of seven by seven foot big you know, dining room table we could picture it as. And Ezra continues, he says in chapter 3, verse 7, Then they gave money to the masons and the carpenters, and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and to the Tyrians, to bring cedar wood from Lebanon to the sea at Joppa, according to the permission they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now we see the timing mentioned there. The first word, at least in my translation, is then, kind of continuing the, the narrative. They offer sacrifices, and then a little time later, we'll read in the next verse how much later that is. But we see groups of people mentioned by Ezra. There are masons mentioned, which work on stones. Do they do stone work? There are carpenters, which work with wood. And he mentions these Sidonians and Tyrians. They're from Phoenicia, and they're responsible for bringing timber, bringing wood from Phoenicia, from Lebanon, it says, to Jerusalem. And they would do that by floating logs down the Mediterranean River. They would load them in probably the port city of Joppa and then transport those logs 25 miles from Joppa to Jerusalem. And they do all this, Ezra tells us at the very end, according to the permission they had from Cyrus the king. Again, that's part of our fulfillment of prophecies we see in chapter 1 and again chapter 6. We see these people get to go back through Cyrus that gives them permission and gives them resources and help. So there's, there's this timing and these people, but also good to remember they've got money with them to finance this project. They've got 1,300 pounds of gold and 6,300 pounds of silver we learn from chapter 2. They've got the finances to do the work. 
So that's the preparation of materials in verse 7. And then we see this preparation of workers in verses 8 and 9. We read, Now in the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jezodak, and the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites, and all who came from the captivity to Jerusalem, began the work and appointed the Levites from 20 years and older to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. So here in verse 8, we have the appointment of Levites to oversee the work on the temple. Numbers chapter 4 describes how Levites did, did work in the tent there of tabernacle from the ages of 30 to 50. In Numbers chapter 8, we learn that they started their work at age 25, meaning they probably had a five-year apprenticeship period before they became an official Levite working. But then in 1 Chronicles, King David lowers the age to 20, probably knowing there'd be more of a need for Levites to do work in a bigger temple that he knew his son Solomon would build. So we see here that Ezra and this group of Jews, Ezra's recording how they, they follow that 20-year age. They're needing as much help as they can get to do the work here on the temple. And they're following the tradition that had started with King David with the year 20. Then in verse 9, we read about the priests that are appointed as overseers. Then Joshua with his sons and brothers stood united with Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah and the sons of Henadad with their sons and brothers, the Levites, to oversee the workmen in the temple of God. So here in verse 9, we see an appointment of priests to oversee the workmen in the temple. Notice in verse 9, it says that they stood united. Jeshua with his sons and brothers stood united and it lists another family. You could translate that word united as one, is one way to translate that Hebrew word. They stood together as one group or one man or one community. Again, we see this theme in the book, not just following tradition of their people, but also being united together as they try to do this, to do their work for God. And the point I think we can take away for us is that there is work that we do for God. Just as these people gather together and work together for God, there's work that we do for God. And it's not about their name and their fame we learn about. Many, 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 many more people probably helped than just the heads of these families that are listed. They're there working together for God, and everybody was probably involved in some way. Some were working with stones, some were working with wood. Maybe there were some strong people that lifted the stones or some, some people that helped with the wood by you know carrying it. Maybe there were some people there designed to to heal wounds or bandage people that were injured. Maybe there are some people in charge of baking food to feed the, the people that were doing all this work. Everybody probably played a role. And for us, in the new living in the age of the church, we have work that we do for God, and we do that according to the gifts of the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit gives us. Right? We each have kind of human ability that we have from birth, but then we have spiritual gifts that are given to us by the Holy Spirit. A human ability is given to us from our physical parents, but the spiritual gifts we have are given to us by our spiritual father. 
Our human ability is received at physical birth, but our spiritual gifts are given to us at our spiritual birth. Our human ability is for the benefit of mankind, but our spiritual gifts are for the benefit of the church. And there's four main places in the New Testament we learn about our spiritual gifts. If you ever want to read them on your own or spend some own, your own time reading them, they're in Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and then Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 4. So two 12s and two 4s is how I usually remember it. And we learn in those four passages that there's a certain nature of those spiritual gifts. That there are obviously different gifts, but they all belong together and serve together. And they're based on the generosity of Christ, and they have one source. They all come from the Holy Spirit. And a different gift is given to each person. But those gifts have a purpose, and the purpose is for people to function within the body of Christ to help each other to do ministry, and to help us grow in our faith as we employ those spiritual gifts. Those gifts are supposed to be used now, but the New Testament never says anywhere that we lose our spiritual gift. So there's work that we do for God. It's not about our name or our fame, but it's also it's, it's done together as a community united. Stephen Cole, who was a pastor in Arizona for many years, says, When the enemy wants to stop such a work, often he disrupts the unity. And that's a theme we've seen in this book, a group of people joined together. Jerry Jenkins, who wrote the Left Behind series, tells a story in his autobiography about, uh, in his younger years, he was writing a book on Brett Griffith, who was a... Uh, sorry, Brett Butler, who played for the Los Angeles Dodgers in the 1990s. He was a Christian, and Jerry Jenkins was writing a book about him, his story. And so as part of writing the book, he would follow Brett Butler to different games and kind of observe him and try to write his story down. And they were playing the Philadelphia Phillies once in L.A. against Kurt Schilling, who was the amazing pitcher back then. And Kurt Schilling and Brett Butler were good friends and both Christian men, so they went to talk to each other before the game, and they kind of chit-chatted, and Jerry Jenkins gets to watch. And Brett Butler tells Kurt Schilling right before they're about to say goodbye, he says, take it easy on me today, will ya? And Kurt Schilling responds, I'm going to put one in your ear. And then they part ways and walk off. Put one in your ear is code for I'm going to throw the baseball at your head if you're not sure. So Jerry Jenkins says, oh, that's kind of funny. He thought he was joking. Well, sure enough, Brett Butler goes up for the first inning, the first bat, the first pitch. And where was the ball thrown? Right at Brett Butler's head. And the story Jerry Jenkins tells, he says that sometimes in sports, competition and friendship, he says friendship ends in the locker room. But isn't that nice for us as Christians? We get to do ministry together as friends and be united and do things together and be on the same page. The woman that runs the Good News Club doesn't have to compete against the woman running the, the women's Bible study. Or the man that organizes the men's breakfast doesn't have to compete against the, the guys organizing prayer. Right? We get to work together and be on the same side. We can be friends but also do ministry together. And in ministry we have cooperation, not competition. We don't care who scores the points, but what's important is that we score points together. 
So here in verses 7 through 11, we see this reconstruction of the temple foundation. And then next in verses 10 through 13, we see the responses of the people as this happens. And the climax is described in verse 10. We read, Now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. Here we have this foundation laid, and the foundation we might read and think, okay, that's nice, but this was important for the Jews at that time to, to lay a foundation in a specific location. That foundation, they believed, was the place where Abraham originally placed Isaac as a sacrifice. It was the place where they offered their legitimate sacrifices for the atonement of sins. It was a place where worshipers could come into God's presence for many, many years. And it's a place where God's name and reputation was rested on, that God would be there, they believed, in the Old Testament. And we see these people, they prepare to celebrate. The priests have trumpets, it says. The priests stood in their apparel with trumpets. One translation uses the word clarions. In the Old Testament, there's kind of two ideas for trumpets. There's sometimes the big, long ram's horn, but here it likely was a metal element that was about a, a foot or a foot and a half long that they would blow through and use for signaling certain events are happening. Then the sons of Asaph gather with symbols. The Levites, the sons of Aser, gather with symbols. Now I looked up that Hebrew word for symbols in two different lexicons, and the definition it gave me for a symbol in Hebrew is a clanging instrument. There you go. Sometimes it helps us, sometimes it's just a clanging instrument. So they have these clanging instruments that they're about to use to make some noise and celebrate that their temple has been built. The goal here of both of these is to glorify, honor, and recognize God for what he has done. And as we read here, we'll read more about their praise. We learn that there is praise that we give to God when we do his work. The 17th century preacher Charles Spurgeon said, Wash your face every morning in the bathe of praise. And we often think of praise as the time of music during our worship service, that we get to praise God and play instruments and use our voices to sing to Him, just like these people are preparing to do. And praise is an activity, it's important for us to remember, praise is an activity that we participate in, not a program that we watch. There's a delicate balance in the church where the, the music and the voices need to be loud enough so we can hear, but also soft enough, that, soft enough so that we're invited to sing with them, right? Because we want to participate in the worship. Sometimes when the stage gets too loud and there's too many lights and too many things going on, it's, it's easy for that to become what we watch and look at, but not something that we sing and participate in. So praise, it's an activity that we participate in. It's not a program that we watch, but it's also an activity that we are formed by. There's a saying, what's said in song is usually remembered long, right? We usually remember lyrics that we sing. What we sing on Sunday, we probably also sing throughout the week. Jen Wilkin, who is an author and has a Bible podcast, once said in an article, she said, By Wednesday, the pastor's three-point sermon 
is forgotten. So, oh well. By Wednesday, the pastor's three sermon points are forgotten, but the chorus of the worship song is still being hummed. It's message repeating in our brains. See, praise is important because it becomes part of who we are and, and how we worship God. And that's why praise is an activity that we need to carefully select. Right? We select songs because they teach good theology and they match our church culture and they invite people to sing. And we want to make sure that we do those things. And sometimes it's easy to pick one or two camps and always stay there. Right? There's the camp that says old hymns are best, they're rich, and we're going to only sing old 16th century hymns. Then there's the other camp that says we're going to only sing what's brand new and on the radio because that attracts young people and that's culturally relevant. And that's kind of easy just to plant in one camp. But what I would think is better and, and healthier is to utilize both of them, but instead, and it's more work, sorry, but you have to read the lyrics to evaluate them. Do they match what we believe as a church? Are they something our church will sing and gather together? Who wrote that lyric and what was his or her life like? That's more work. It's easier just to say old is best or new is better. But it's okay to use both as long as we carefully select them and read the lyrics and know what we're singing. So these leaders, they have repaired the foundation, and now we get to see the people respond in verses 11 through 13. And we see their singing in verse 11. They sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Now we see these people, probably a lot of commentators will say they didn't just sing as in one voice, but it was probably a responsive singing back and forth. So these people, they, res they sing responsively, but they're also singing resolutely. They say, for he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. I like the message, which is a paraphrase. It says, yes, God is good. Oh, yes, he'll never quit loving Israel. And they have this idea of loving kindness, the Hebrew word, Hebrew word hesed, which described God's faithfulness to his commitments, his continual love, and his steadfast loyalty. And God has been good to these people up until this point in time. Cyrus has, moved, has let them go to their land. He gave them safe travels as they went. He encouraged people to give to them, to help them get there. He's allowed them to set their foundation. God has been good to these people. But there's not just singing that occurs in verse 11. There's some sobbing in verse 12. Yet many of the priests and Levites, the head of the father's households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes. While many shouted, Allowed for joy. So some of these older priests and heads of the families, it says they wept with a loud voice. 
Ezra doesn't tell us why they wept. Was it because the, the foundation was so much smaller than before? Was it because there's no Ark of the Covenant that is lost? Was it because they didn't see God's glory return to the temple? Most commentators will say that they, they weep because they're sad because this temple is so much smaller. This foundation is so much smaller than the previous one Solomon had built. And to put it in perspective, Solomon employed 153,000 people over seven years to build a temple. Now we've got 50,000 people trying to do it on their own. Of that, there's maybe 15,000 men that are working on it. So are they sad because the, the temple is because of its size? Or are they sobbing because they believe there's a restoration? Are they sobbing because they're happy? And I think they're weeping and sobbing because they're so happy and so moved that God has been good to them. And they are praising God so much that they're crying in their praise. Because it wasn't really about the temple as we've seen these people return to the land. They don't wait for a temple to worship God. They set up a, a little altar on their own and they begin worshiping God between two months and two months, uh, between two weeks and two months of going back to the land. Some of you, when you eat cake for a birthday or something like that, you enjoy the cake and the cake tastes pretty good, but you know the person that baked the cake and you know where that person keeps the extra icing. So after you eat the cake, you grab your spoon and you go get a dip of some more icing and you eat it. The temple for these people, I believe, is kind of like that extra icing. They're already in the land. They're already worshiping God. The temple is just like a big, nice bonus that they get to enjoy. It was still important, but it wasn't all about a building and a temple. It was about worshiping God, and they've already began that. And through this singing and this sobbing, there's a statement that gets sent out to people that can hear it nearby. Verse 13 says, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard from far away. There's so much noise that people can hear this singing, this music, the weeping, all mixed together, and they recognize it from a long distance away. And that's important for us to realize that there's recognition God receives when God does His work. In two different ways. There's recognition God receives when He does His work because of what He's done, here it's an altar in the foundation of a temple. And for us, that might be recognition we give to God when he does work in our lives. Maybe we've been single and God delivers us out of that singleness and gives us a spouse. Maybe we're in school trying to navigate school, but God gives us a good Christian friend to help us get through school. Maybe we're in financial trouble and God delivers us out of those difficulties. We can praise God because of what he's done in our lives, but also we can praise God as we see from these people's example. We can praise him because of what we believe he will do in the future. In their example, the temple is not built yet, yet they praise God for what they believe he will do. It's as if they're saying, God has done this, so we know he will do that in the future. And for us, we can... Praise God because of what he will do. We believe he will do. It might be phrases like, I know God has a purpose for this, but I don't know what it is yet. 
Or maybe we can say, I know God will use this for good, but I don't know how he will use this for good. I know God wouldn't make me suffer for this reason. Those are all statements we can make where we praise God about what we believe he will do in the future, even when we feel sorrowful, grateful, or sad. So we've read about these people that have returned to their land and learned that there's work for God that we do, that there's praise we give to God, and that there's recognition that God receives when he does his work. And we've arrived in the year 536 B.C., This temple that they're about to begin building and and finish, a little 20 years later if we get ahead, is going to stand until 70 AD for almost 600 years. And this was a big deal for the Jews to to have left Babylon and come now to, to Judah. They left Babylon, that area of comfort that they probably enjoyed and the city they knew. They left their community that they had been a part of. They left the commerce and the businesses that they were involved in. And it wasn't just hard to leave, it was hard to arrive in Judah. They've come to a land that's been left unkept for 50 to 70 years. They've arrived to a city that has no walls around it to protect it. And there's no economy with farms or commerce or produce or anything going on. But these people, they've stood up in courage and they have been fervent in their passion for God as they try to build this temple and begin worshiping God again. They began sacrificing on the altar again. They've laid the foundation. And next, we're going to see in the next two weeks that they encounter more opposition, more people that want to oppose them. And we're going to see if they can stand up against those people and continue in their worship of God. Let's pray together. Lord, thanks to you for your word and what it teaches us and what it reminds us. Some of these things maybe we know, but we need stories and reminders, reminders to keep us on track. Thank you for Ezra and these tribes and these people that, that tell us their story. They remind us that there's work we all have that we do for you, Lord that there's praise that we give to you and there's recognition you receive when you do your work through us. I pray for our church family that you would speak to us and show us your will and how we live these things out together. I pray as we gather and begin to celebrate communion together that you would remind us of what you did ultimately through these people that returned to their land how you sent a a Savior through the nation of Israel that came and died for our sins. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.